Welcome to Canada's History's Stories Behind the History podcast. I'm Kate Jamet, Senior Editor of Canada's History magazine. This episode is brought to you from the Canadian Historical Association's 2023 National Conference. And today I'm speaking with Dave Hazan. Hi. Hi, Dave. Dave is a PhD candidate at York University in Toronto, and he is completing his dissertation, Speeding Toward Babylon, Subcultural Drug Use in Canada, 1960 to 1980. Fascinating topic, Dave. Thank you. So, Dave, maybe just... um, Tell me a little bit about what areas you studied and how you went about studying this topic. Okay. Um, well, thanks very much for having me and uh, really happy to be here. So when I decided that I wanted to do a PhD in history, um, I had to obviously pick a, a specialty or something. And for a long time, I'd been interested in the history of substance use of uh, drugs and alcohol and um, why people use them. Um what they represent, what their uh, significances are, and, and, um, and so on. There are many different ways of studying drug history. So you can study it as, a, uh, uh, as policy. Certainly many people do that. Drug laws, why they have them. You can uh, uh, study it as a medical or a scientific issue. I chose to study it as a cultural issue, and um, particularly as a subcultural issue, in the sense that um, when people use drugs, so whether it's a, um, like a, a bunch of regulars lined up at a bar drinking, or whether it's a couple of hippies sharing a joint, or whether it's some uh, more seriously addicted people uh, sharing uh, or using uh, heroin, these things are done in a group. And the dynamics of that group and uh, the drugs they use and um, their ideologies and outlooks are cultural or subcultural for that matter. And so I wanted to look into what these cultures meant. Why is it that the hippies would uh, traditionally smoke marijuana and drop LSD? And how did that affect their culture? Whereas 10 years later, uh, the punk movement would eschew marijuana for the most part and go for um, uh, liquor and speed. Okay. And and how did that affect them? And so what the and uh, how do we go from one to the other? And so these are the questions that I'm exploring in uh, Canada's big cities. Okay, so I want to riff off that because you gave a really interesting talk yesterday. Um, it was called Hippie Capital, Heroin Capital, Drugs, Space, and Class in 1960s and 1970s Vancouver. So in that talk, you were looking at two different subcultures in Vancouver, in that area. And uh, one were the hippies, and then the other was a subculture that you called the junkies. So maybe you could just talk to me about those two different subcultures in Vancouver at that time. Yeah. So... The thing with Vancouver is that um, Vancouver has been for since at least the 1880s, sort of the almost the alpha and the omega of drug uh, drug use in Canada. Um, most drug users, or at least a massive proportion of them, have lived in Vancouver. Um, from it, it, you know, for example, there were the Chinese opium smokers uh, and so on, which set off the moral panic, which led to our first drug laws in uh, 1907 and 1908. Around the 20s, the majority of drug users uh, started becoming white. And they moved on to heroin, which was actually invented by the Bayer Aspirin Company 20 years earlier. Um, and they went on to heroin and uh, they formed almost a subculture in the east side of Vancouver which I referred to not very comfortably as the junkies. And the reason I used the 
the word, obviously the word junkie is very, very stigmatizing. It refers to someone who goes through the garbage to find junk to sell for heroin. At the same time, I simply couldn't find another one. I looked in the dictionary, I talked to people, and in the end, we decided to stick with junkie, despite all of its um, um, baggage that goes with it. And they've been there since, I guess, the 20s, let's say, uh, in, um, in the east side of Vancouver, always trouble with the police, tended to be very lower class, poor, um, and uh, generally uh, not much in the way of education or prospects. Well, then what happened, as most people know, is that in the early 60s, the hippie uh, phenomenon developed out of the, uh, the beats and uh, others. And Vancouver became very, very popular with uh, hippies, right? And they began to settle not in the east side where the junkies were, but rather in the west side of Vancouver, uh, particularly in um, uh, Kitsilano and 4th Avenue and Arbutus around that area. Uh, which is um, at the time would have been like a middle class area. It was mostly Greek immigrants closer to the University of British Columbia. The distance physically uh, between where the junkies were and the downtown east side and where the uh, hippies were was really several kilometers. And um, it was entirely possible for the two groups never actually to see each other. Now they did. They would see each other. Sometimes there would be interactions. But generally they stayed apart. Right. They stayed apart. The hippies in particular didn't really want anything to do with the junkies. They tended to look down on them. I have a quote from one guy, for example, who said, um, you, we look down on junkies and we look down on juicers. Juicers were people who drank. We look down on junkies, we look down on juicers because uh, they were just killing their brains and we we're expanding our minds and our consciousness with uh, acid and uh, cannabis and the rest of it. Now, I think that's a little uh, silly. <laughs> and I think that today, I think the guy, when I spoke to him, I think he realized himself that it, maybe it was a bit of an odd or a bit of a uh, self-righteous uh, argument. But certainly um, those on the West Side, the hippies, were more middle class. Many of them were American. They'd come out from the States as uh, draft resistors, like, for example, Cheech Marin, the comedian. Um, and uh, they, they had their own enclave, which was cut off from the drug-using population that was familiar to Vancouver for 40 years. So the, the hippies, you said they they said that their reason for using the drugs was to expand their minds, to, to have a new psychic experience or whatever. Right. What was the reason or motivation for the junkies to use the drugs? Okay. So one of the problems uh, I had in my research is that in the case of Vancouver, at least, I could not find any quote unquote surviving junkies to interview. Uh, unfortunately, the fact is heroin kills, uh, especially now. And uh, whereas I was able to find some in Toronto and Montreal, I simply was not able to connect with anybody who had used heroin or drank regularly in the Skid Row areas of Vancouver 40 or 50 years ago. They're just simply not alive. Or if they are, they didn't come to talk to me. Now, it doesn't mean I demand there are other sources. So I looked in first person sources. And what was their motivation was their motivation appeared to be largely to kill pain. They tended to be... Uh, addicted to heroin or alcohol or something else, uh, largely in order to uh, kill pain. 
and to uh, so that pain might be caused by all kinds of things. Uh, like I said, they were mostly white, but certainly there were indigenous and uh, Asian and black uh, uh, junkies as well, not very many. They'd be using it to kill a certain pain, obviously. Um, and the other people who were there tend to be very poor, often came from abusive households. Some of them uh, just fell into it. A lot of them were resource workers, for example, guys who would work out in the lumber camps or in the mines or something, and were not able to work any longer possibly due to an injury or uh, exhaustion or something like that. And so they would begin uh, using drugs, uh, heroin, alcohol regularly in order to kill physical pain in that case, and sometimes emotional pain. Now, just because they're in pain does not mean they didn't have their own subculture. I wasn't able to penetrate that very well. Um, however, there are other people like, for example, um, Gabor Mate, the um, uh, the addictions doctor, or Dr. Bruce Alexander from SFU, a few others. Uh, they're not historians, but these guys have really gone and over the decades talked to people in the downtown east side and seen what their uh, uh, views were. And again, it, it really seemed to be an issue of dealing with pain. Uh, that said, there was also a vibrant jazz and rock subculture at the same time. So uh, you'd have a guy, for example, like Al Neal. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or anyone. So Al Neal was a just a fascinating man. So he stormed D-Day with the Canadian Army. He fought all the way up through the Netherlands. He came back. He was a piano player, an artist, a writer, quite a good one, and a heroin addict. And uh, he became a fixture in the 50s and 60s in the, uh, well, in the 50s in the jazz scene. Then moving into the 60s, he did a bit of bridging between these two um, subcultures, which we can talk about later. Um, so some people who were using these drugs on the east side were uh, part of a jazz subculture. And of course, jazz at the time was very closely related to heroin and liquor and also uh, cannabis. Um, so there was that. Uh, there was a rock and roll subculture, so on. And so they used drugs as well. But majority of what I understood was it was people dealing with uh, pain. It, it's an interesting connection that I didn't realize between alcohol and heroin, because of course alcohol is legal and has been sure. legal for, I think, a long time. Since the 20s. Yeah. Like barring a few years of prohibition, kind of been legal forever almost. Um, whereas heroin is obviously not and wasn't, I don't believe, was legal at the time either. So what what was the... What was the connection between alcohol and heroin? Why those two together? Well, they didn't necessarily, they weren't necessarily used together. Um, the uh, heroin was illegal, made illegal in 1907 in Canada um, with the Opium Act. Um, uh, both heroin and alcohol are um, drugs. Many people will use these, drug, uh, these drugs almost interchangeably. Sometimes there are stories of some heroin addicts, for example, who when they can't get their heroin, they'll go to the liquor store. Um, they don't do the same thing. One is not going to replace the other, but they will both alter you enough that you will cease to feel, hopefully, you will temporarily at least cease to feel pain. Um, they Commonly, they're not used together, huh. as far as I know. Um, though I'm, you might have to ask an addiction specialist on that, which I'm not. But um, 
But they were both part of the same subculture, whereas the hippies, you were saying, were just not that into alcohol, exactly. really. So the hippies disdained what they called juicers and junkies. Ideologically, people use drugs for different reasons. Um, availability, obviously, is the most important. That's why most of us drink. It's because it's the most available drug. And now more people are using cannabis because, again, it's available everywhere, especially if you live in this province. And then, um, and then the way it makes you feel um, vis-a-vis the culture you're in and the ideological symbolism, uh, symbolism of it, right? So smoking a joint has a sim- is symbolic of something. Today, it's maybe not as symbolic much, but in the 60s, it was symbolic of saying, I dissent, I disagree. And this was especially the case uh, with hippies would refuse, many, not all, would refuse to drink because it was associated with the older generation. And this is especially, uh, it, but this is mostly by the martini. I can't tell you how many of my uh, uh, interviewees said, uh, when I'd, I'd ask them, do you drink? And they said, no, but my father did. And they'd always have stories about their parents, you know, with the shaker, making cocktails. Uh, you know, after following World War, World War II, uh, boozing went through the roof. And it just became uh, so common for people to just really drink and to come up with, and this is the, the, era, the era of the cocktail and the rest of it. And um, a lot of these guys just associated drinking with old squares, right? This is the big generation gap in the 60s, you know? Booze, you know, especially the martini and the uh, glass of wine. Or they, 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 these are for old people. These are for the parents. And then as far as heroin goes, it's like, well, those are for jazz musicians. That's for jazz musicians. We all use heroin. We're, we don't listen to jazz. We're, you know, a new generation. Again, jazz by this point is old. Right. Jazz is for, you know, it's heroin is for has-beens. Alcohol is for has-beens. We're a new generation. We're using drugs for new reasons to expand our minds. Right. Now they were using them for many different reasons. <laughs> but the uh, but that was a big one was the idea that uh, uh, the, 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 the the what alcohol and heroin represented to them was uh, was antithetical to what they believed in. So what happened? What, what happened to the hippies? Good question. I asked 73 people what happened to the hippies. I think I got 73 different answers. But, well, I think what happened is that with most ideological movements and most utopian movements, um, they tend to be infiltrated by uh, people who have different motivations. You could just say bad people if you wanted. Um, it's funny how it hap- repeats itself through history. So whether it's, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Barcelona in 1936 or uh, the Israeli kibbutzes or the, um, uh, the diggers in England in the 17th century or whatever, they, they begin often very uh, in, w- with the best of intentions and things tend to go well, but then other people will get involved often who want to exploit. And really, I think this is what happened with the hippies. Other people moved in. In uh, Toronto, uh, it was most visibly the motorcycle gangs came in and they started selling harder drugs. In Toronto, in Vancouver, there, there was also motorcycle gangs, but they, the, uh, the hippies um, became disillusioned, right? Things were, uh, the, the, the promise, that's, uh, the, the, the hippie promise, the promise of the 60s was falling apart. Uh, the economy was starting to get very bad. Uh, not very bad yet. It was starting to darken, though. Um, there were certainly much fewer jobs come around 1970. The oil shocks were still a few years away. But um, there was infighting. 
people started to realize that uh, free love often did not mean free love, it meant coerced sex, or sexual assault. And uh, people moved in who had other reasons for using drugs, they used to say, which just, you know, to get high, just to get high. And, um, and this created tensions and a feeling that, um, that this dream was dying. So a lot of people went out to the country in Vancouver that often meant only going to North Van, which was uh, right close by. And so they'd set up uh, places there. But otherwise, they sort of spread across Vancouver again. And uh, what you had at this point was um, traditionally hippies had been middle class or upper class. Well, now you got a lot more working class and poor people joining them, and they had brought their own baggage with them. Uh, they started to live in places like the downtown east side, or at least around it, Chinatown, Gastown, Chinatown, Gastown, um, pardon me. Uh, near the central post office and then SFU, uh, Burnaby, that just opened and was a huge magnet for um, uh, hippies and radicals. And um, as a result, you ended up having a mixing of these two subcultures. So whereas before you had these two subcultures that appeared to be relatively sealed from each other, as the late 60s happened, they begin to converge. Uh, more junkies are moving into the West End which is something that West End residents noticed. More hippies were moving into junky areas. They started using the same drugs. The drinking age dropped to 18. That was a big thing. Um, and so a lot of hippies who disdained juicers, hated juicers, you know, wouldn't talk to juicers, all of a sudden started going to bars now that they were able to. Sometimes it was just a score. A lot of the bars in Gastown and stuff became basically drug uh, markets. Um, and they sort of, they, they, the, uh, and so the groups merged into what would be sort of one large drug using city. Um, now, I don't want to exaggerate. Class was still very important. Um, certainly, race was important. Things like that were, were important. Geography was important, but uh, it was much more of a mix. So, that, for example, by 1970, Cheech and Chong who are uh, uh, famous as you know, hippie comedians, uh, they never went to the West End when they got their start in Vancouver. They did all their work in the East End. Tommy Chong was a musician and he owned a bunch of, or he uh, managed a bunch of uh, bars. And, uh, uh, and, you know, he met Cheech there. And then the two of them uh, uh, started doing this comedy act for the hippies. Uh, but they never went to this hippie enclave, you know, they just stayed downtown. People came to them. And so it, it was really starting to mix now. Whereas in 1966, people were saying, I never went east of uh, Camby. Now it was, I never went west of Camby in some <laughs> cases. So it was, um, it was interesting how that happens um, in, in that case. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah. Anna? Yeah. And I'm also just wondering if, I mean, so once you start mixing though, then you start getting into the harder drugs. That's right. Um, so there must have also been some people who just sort of kind of grew out of it in quotes or sort of, you know, decided to have an adult life that didn't involve, you know, yeah. the drugs or the subculture or whatever like that. Yeah. So, so a lot of people just grow up. Um, the I met a lot of people, they said, you know, well, why did well, I asked them, well, why did you uh, stop? Uh, you know, I got a job. I got married. I uh, had a kid. I I mean, some of these, it was incredible. One guy that I spoke to, you know, within an, between the ages of about 16 and 19, he became an addict 
opened a bunch of uh, uh, businesses in Vancouver catering to hippies, was arrested, went to prison, got married, got hooked on heroin. Sorry, he was already hooked on heroin. Got rehooked on heroin and then quit because his wife was pregnant. She said it was either the baby or heroin. And he quit. And according to him, he hasn't used since. And this had all happened between about 1966 and 1970 when he was a teenager. And um, so, yeah, responsibility definitely comes in there. A lot of the guys I spoke to, it was funny, became advertising uh, execs. Seemed to be a real uh, pipeline from hippiedom to uh, writing ads. Um, so let, let me ask you a question, though, about... The- I mean, I, I'm not from Vancouver and I visited no. it maybe once, so I don't know Vancouver well. Okay. But of course, what you read all the time in the news is about the downtown east side. And I mean, everybody in Canada has heard that, right? And I'm sure we all have our impressions of what it is without even ever having been there. But I mean, it, the impression that one has is that it's a very big drug using area with a lot of people who are pretty down and out, right? Like not an affluent not, not people using recreational drugs who are otherwise affluent, but people who are pretty down and out and, and um, homeless and that. Is that, like, can you draw a connection between the 1960s and the drug scene there and then maybe even earlier, like the 1920s, and what's going on there now? Oh, there are connections, all right. Um, unfortunately, my research ends in 1980, so I don't really have the uh, information in front of me. But what I can t- this goes into the idea of what is it with BC and drugs. It, it continues right up until now. Um, what's, what I can tell you is that by 1980, the punks were living in the downtown east side, the, many of whom were middle class. Um, the poorer people, many of them were in the West End. There, there was this class mix thing. Now, what's happened in Vancouver from 1980 until now has been the rever- has been the situation has been completely reversed and then exponentially taken to the most extreme end you can get. So that what you have now in Vancouver is this very small and it gets smaller all the time as it goes in very small, very poor, uh, very hard up section of downtown uh, that you see on the news where people are uh, are just dead. this place is in so much pain. I refuse to romanticize it. Like I know it's a community and I know people there, but it, it, to me, it looks like a refugee camp. And in a lot of ways, it is a refugee camp. These people are fleeing, right? From lives they can't have. Meanwhile, they are surrounded by untold billions in wealth. Certainly the most expensive city in Canada. Uh, a, a one bedroom apartment there is apparently twice what it is in Toronto. And let me tell you, in Toronto, it's hell. It is. So I, 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 I can't imagine living there. When I lived there 20 years ago, we paid an obscene amount of money for a basement apartment, and I can't possibly imagine what it's like now. Yeah. So you have this small area um, that's, well, it's fighting for survival in a sense. It, they want to build a community there, but because it's so transient, it's almost like, again, a refugee camp mm. that um, it, it, it's hard to do. Meanwhile, they are surrounded by obscene wealth, absolutely insane amounts of money, uh, really just crossing the street. You can go from million dollar condos to single occupancy hotels that cost a little more than your welfare check. So um, that's where we're at now with that. Um, I don't know how it's going to go forward. 
I do know that the uh, the new administration in uh, in Vancouver is determined to move these people, and they are not going to succeed because um, they have nowhere to go. There's the services they need are there in the downtown east side. Well, what good does it do to move? That? I mean, you have to m- move people somewhere. What, what well, no, no, it doesn't do any good. Right. I, I'm not. I, 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 oh. uh, what they're doing right now is they're uh, dismantling all the tents, mm-hmm. just like they are in Toronto and elsewhere. And, they're moving tents and they're clearing the place and telling everyone to get lost. Well, where the hell are they going to go? I mean, uh, I saw a woman on the news the other day said they should go to Burnaby. What? What? what so now it's you know now, now, now Burnaby social services deal with it. Is the services they need? What community they have is in that area, right? It, frankly, it's amazing they've held on as long as they have in there, um, but. Have I answered the question? Yeah, yeah, no, it's fascinating. It, it's really interesting. The, the other thing I, I'm curious about, and again, this is probably outside the scope of your research, but I, I'm just going to ask you because you mentioned availability, yeah. right, as being one of the factors on, uh-huh. you know, what, why you use a certain drug or why you might use a drug at all. Um, and I'm, I find it kind of interesting because in the debate over drugs in Canada, which is a big debate, but sometimes you hear this argument, well, we should just, we should legalize hard drugs because then it will remove the stigma and then people can get better because there's not a stigma of dealing with it. So they can, they can get better. They can help people, professionals can help their addiction. But then on the other hand, if you legalize these hard drugs, then you make them more available. And then there's a whole pool of people out there who might never have tried those, but who are going to become addicted who, you know, then become kind of victims of that policy. So I don't know, do you have any thoughts on that based on your historical research? Not so much of my historical research, but I can tell you this, is that the uh, the reason why I think hard drugs should be legalized is not so that they're free of stigma, it's so that they're free of fentanyl. And the reason why I think we need to legalize, or legalize a hard word, somebody when they think legalize, they may it'll be sold at the 7-Eleven or something like that. I think heroin, should be legalized and regulated and controlled by the government so that they can remove the impurities that are killing people and killing people literally by the thousands. People die of fentanyl overdoses thousands and thousands every year. We know what the answer is. It's to set up a safe supply. It won't solve every problem, but it will take the fentanyl out of the heroin because we'll be able to test it. But that would only right. be available to people who, as a treatment to people who are already addicted. Or how do you address this not so, wanting to have new addicts, right? Okay. So obviously no, uh, no, no system is perfect. Um, one option for legalization, which I think is good, is that we have to draw a line somewhere. Well, we already do this with scheduling of drugs. But, you know, okay, so we say like, the soft drugs are here. We can sell those at, uh, like we do with marijuana or liquor or something like that. The hard drugs are here. And these ones maybe are available only with a doctor's prescription. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand that still leaves a black market for people who want to use it for the first time. Okay. Uh, recently, the National Post put out a thing about how this is going. It was a terrible article. But they said about how um, safe supply gets diverted. Um, see. Okay, so it isn't perfect. Some people may get hurt when they uh, try it for the first time. At least the stuff that's diverted, you know, I mean, unless someone cuts it, you have an idea of what's, uh, what you're getting. 
And that's what I think we're looking for as a solution for um, to, at least to stop the deaths. Once we stop the deaths, then we can work on other programs to help people uh, recover if that's what they want or otherwise live uh, better lives. But they're not going to live better lives if they're dead. Let, let me pull you back to history because um, sure. we are a history podcast. Sure. Uh, tell me about, uh, so you looked at Vancouver, you looked at the hippies and the junkies in Vancouver. You also looked at Montreal and Toronto. Tell me about what you what you found out in Montreal and Toronto. Okay. Um, well, the interesting thing about Toronto was um, the uh, hippie movement was uh, located around Yorkville, uh, traditionally. Um, now a very expensive... Now- <laughs> A uber ritzy area of Toronto. Yeah, people keep calling it Rodeo Drive North now. It's so funny because it's not like it just gentrified. It went from, you know, the 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 the, the Ashbury of Toronto to like the Rodeo Drive of Toronto. So with its Armani's and the rest of the yeah, yeah. Gucci watches. Um, yeah, but what, before then, yeah, uh, they were in Yorkville, but we didn't have this strict separation of classes the way they had in Vancouver. So in Yorkville, um, uh, researchers who were down there um, were uh, would note for the fact that there were lower class, quote unquote, greasers who were there, motorcyclists, and then hippies, and then weekend hippies, and, and then all sorts of other thing, you know, groups. But they were all in there together. Doesn't mean they necessarily got along, but they were all in there together. In Montreal, um, there were two main areas, the McGill Ghetto and Carré Saint-Louis. And uh, one was more Anglo and one was more French, though, again, it wasn't strict. Um, But generally, one was more Anglo, one was more French. And again, um, it tended to mix more. One thing that was interesting about Montreal that I discovered was that um, Montreal's reputation for organized crime uh, was something that many of the people I talked to felt, whereas they didn't necessarily feel it in Vancouver or Toronto. For example, I knew a guy in, in Montreal, generally uh, uh, the people who were selling cannabis at this time were just small time dudes, you know, selling to their friends, you know, they get it from, it was, it was, it was very copacetic and uh, you didn't make much of a profit, just enough to, for yourself. Well, then one day this guy knocks on his door and he introduces himself as someone, I'm not going to say his name, but as this person. And he said, if you don't stop selling marijuana here, we're coming back. And, uh, and it wasn't to uh, bake cookies, right? And so he quit, just immediately quit selling marijuana because he said, I'm not here to join the mob. Um, the uh, Montreal was the import port number, what, sorry, from at least since World War II, possibly earlier, till the mid-70s, uh, most drugs into Canada came through Montreal, uh, through uh, the French Connection, which was a famous uh, thing where they, they grew the uh, opium in Turkey and Lebanon, shipped it to Marseille in France, where Corsican gangsters and the Italian mafia would process it into heroin, and then send it to the U.S., and, uh, well, send it to the North American East Coast, some would go to New York and Boston and the East Coast ports. But a lot of it went to Montreal. Montreal has the advantage of being only 300-some miles from New York, which is the largest um, drug uh, market on the planet, or at least it was then. 
And so uh, that, that was uh, its advantage. And there were these big mafia families like the Rizzutos and um, I can't remember the other name, the Bananos and others who had a lock on this um, heroin and hashish importing business. And so they, they, they controlled large parts of Montreal. They controlled many of the bars. People would open shop. I, one guy, again, opened a coffee shop. And one day, uh, this guy shows up and he says, hi, I'm your new security. He said, oh, I didn't ask for any security. He said, well, isn't that too bad? Because you've got it. And he realized that they, that they were trying to take over his business, so he shut it down. Um, there, there was a gunfight, actually, inside the uh, thing. And then that guy, who was security, was found garroted a few months later. So a lot of people, in, and then even going into the punk years, there was a guy I spoke to who was essentially forced to record a single by a, uh, a gangster to, I, I don't remember the exact details. Now, in the end, none of these people got hurt, which is what's important. Um, but there was definitely a feeling in Montreal that there were certain people you really didn't want to piss off. Um, and that things were more serious in Montreal when it came to crime and when it came to, you know, the, the selling and buying drugs than in Toronto and Vancouver. Now, I'm not saying those places didn't have violence. Of course they did. I'm not saying they didn't have gangsters. Of course they did. <laughs> they were worse in Montreal. It was more organized. It was more, yeah, it was more organized and it was more violence. As one guy told me, Peter Edwards, who writes for the Toronto Star about organized crime, he told me, he said he'd never heard any stories about Ontario or British Columbia or American bikers going into Montreal and pushing people around. I mean, that just didn't happen. On the other hand, Montreal bikers would go to Ontario and the States and BC and push people around. And yeah. take so they were very violent and um, they would simply do things that were not, uh, um, that wouldn't happen in Toronto, Vancouver, which again, uh, uh, contributes to that reputation that Montreal has still today Yeah, and as an organized crime hub. Yeah. And were they more interested in the heroin trade or was it, were they controlling the marijuana trade as well? Heroin and hashish. So um, uh, cannabis in the 60s and 70s, this is always a big debate between my interviewees. Was it hash or was it pot, you know, the flour? And I swear half of them said, no, 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 we, we, we only had hash. And the other said, no, 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 we only had pot. And, and uh, some, well, some, I guess some people said we had both. Montreal certainly seemed to have a lot of hash. And that would have come from the French connection. Uh, because it's, again, it, it's processed, right? And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a product traditionally of the Middle East, of Turkey and Lebanon and places like that. Um, so there was hash uh, coming in through the French connection. But heroin's the big moneymaker. I mean, it's heroin that's... Uh, People can get hooked on hash, but they're much more likely to get hooked on heroin, and uh, that's when you get the repeat customers. And was the heroin associated with the jazz scene in Montreal too? I mean, jazz, oh, sure. Is, yeah. Oh sure. Oh, yeah. Man. Yep. There were all sorts of stories. All of the earliest drug stories I have from um, th these would have come from other sources, not the people I interviewed because it's too long ago. But certainly, uh, if you read about the jazz scene in the um, uh, in Montreal in the, the fifth, going all the way back to the twenties, but certainly in forties, fifties, and sixties, plenty of heroin, mm. plenty of heroin, plenty of liquor, um, and also uh, what they called reefer cannabis. How did you find people to interview for your work? Uh, with difficulty. <laughs> it was, um, so this was COVID. Um, what I did, well, Google, 
was my great friend, right? So I began with, I would look into the secondary literature. So I would read a book about, let's say, Yorkville or the hippies in uh, Vancouver or something. And I'd write down names. And then I'd contact some of these names, right? Now, of course, this was all anonymous, so I can't say who it was or anything. But And then they would recommend names if they trusted me. So sometimes I was... Sometimes I wouldn't get lucky at all. I'd just get one person, that person, if they, they might talk to me and say, oh, do you have anyone else I can talk to? No, we're not. I don't know anyone else anymore. Some people, you know, left the scene yeah. quite seriously. Um, others, though, would give me, gave me, one guy gave me about 10 names and they all worked out. So uh, it was really, so um, that's mostly how I did it. I did, um, I would post on Facebook uh, in different uh, groups, especially like, uh, you know, you have groups remembering Yorkville or uh, um, rock pop de Montréal or mm. something like that, right? And I put it in there and they do it. Well, what do you think um, people today who are involved in looking at, I guess, dr- drug policy or maybe that's too narrow, but what do you think people could da- today could take from understanding the drug culture's of the 60s to the 80s? What I hope people can uh, get the most out of my research, at least, is an understanding that the drug use is a, a cultural phenomenon, apart from being also a medical and a legal phenomenon. It's that as well. That it is a cultural and a subcultural phenomenon, and that when groups of people get together and use drugs, whether they're legal or not, um, they're getting together to use them generally as a cultural community, as a group of people. If you're going to examine um, from, a, like, for either from a policy perspective or a medical perspective, or from really any perspective about why people are using drugs, why they um, continue to use drugs, even if it's very bad for them, you have to look at ideas of the cultures that they're embedded in and uh, why they do certain things. Now, m- m- most addicts who, are, who simply can't quit, it's not a cultural issue, they're in pain, they need medical help. But many people who use, and many people use heavily, even dangerously, um, but are not addicted, do so out of a cultural um, milieu. Look, I, I find it very hard to go to a rock concert and not have a few drinks, right? It's not even forces me to do it. There's nothing that uh, says anything. Um, but the idea of going to see one of my favorite bands and not having a, a beer or a bunch of beers <laughs> to uh, go with it doesn't ring out. Yeah, it doesn't right? feel like part of the real experience. That's right. And it's it's not like I'm going to be drinking alone. At least not usually. <laughs> it's not like going to be drinking alone. I'm going to be with people and we're going to be having a cultural experience together that involves drinking or smoking pot. Or again, like in the past, uh, when I was uh, younger and my head was on straighter, um, uh, use a psychedelic like mushrooms or something. We did this as a group in order to, um, I'm not sure what we were doing exactly, but we were doing this together as a group. And again, it was a cultural issue. It was on the West Coast. That's what happens out there. And, um, and I think it's important for anyone who's dealing with drugs as a phenomenon to look past just the, to look past the individual, look past the medical and the political and the, and the legal issues, 
and look at the cultural questions. Not only there's all those other things, but I think it's something that definitely needs to be um, understood. As far as the culture and subculture go, what I would say is that to understand that we all use drugs. Okay, we all use drugs. Um, I'm just finishing a Diet Coke, Diet Pepsi in here. It's got caffeine in it. That's one of the reasons I bought it was because I'm exhausted, <laughs> working 16-hour days. And, um, you know, I wanted a little pick-me-up, and I'm going to have some coffee later. Um, most people I know drink, even if it's just one or two. I'm telling you, it's not for the taste. Um, the And then otherwise, uh, you think of the galaxy of pills that people take these days. Mm. Um, some of them are not drugs of abuse. But... How many adults today take Ritalin mm. or Adderall? Ritalin and Adderall are speed, mm. right? Mm. I'm not saying people shouldn't take them. Take them if your doctor says you should take them. But understand that you are using a drug that is affecting your uh, mind. You're you are taking a mind-altering drug, okay? It may not make you loopy, but it is altering how you think and Almost everyone uses drugs. I said everyone, but I meant almost everyone. There are some people who don't. Almost everyone uses drugs. And I think understanding, compassion, tolerance, these are the key words that we need um, when we're dealing with people who use drugs. Not least because it's all of us. Good ending. That's a good ending. That's great. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Dave, and best of luck on your PhD, finishing it up and defending your thesis. Well, thank you very much. It was really great being here. Thank you so much. The Stories Behind the History podcast is produced by Canada's History Society. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not subscribe to Canada's History magazine? To subscribe or simply to find out more about Canada's History Society, visit us at canadashistory.ca. Our theme music is the Red River Jig, performed by Alex Kusterok from his album Métis Fiddling for Dancing. I'm Kate Jamet. Thanks for joining me.